John chapter 20, verses 1 through 10. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the, t- the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other outran Peter and reached the tomb first, and stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb, and he saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. This is God's word. Hello. How are we? Are we good? Good. It's a good day. It's a good day, and the weather's good. It's not raining on us, and it's, it's, it's been great. I just feel really good today. Um, although it's really awkward being back here. I want to be out here with you guys. So I'm, I'm preaching from right over here. Um, and I do like that you guys are so close today. That's very nice. Um, okay, so what we do here is, um, is context. We like to go back into the ancient, ancient world in which these books were, were written and try to understand exactly what the original hearers of these stories would have heard. Um, you might be surprised to know that they, when they read these books, they actually thought of completely different things than you did. Um, they lived in a different time where um, different words had multiple meanings. Um, and so what we like to do every year, you know, sometimes a couple of years back, I talked about the festivals and how those represented Jesus. I think that scriptures from beginning to end, Genesis to Revelation, is all about Jesus. And this is what we try to do here. Um, pull all this out and show how it relates to this. So today, um, I'm going to... Um, we're going to take a little trip. Uh, um, we're going to sort of, if you put the resurrection here, we're going to kind of go around like this a bit, and, and we're going to come back here. We're going to walk around it a bit and look at some, at some different ideas and, and try to look at the resurrection from a completely different angle, um, maybe that you haven't um, thought of or, or heard of before. Um, so let's pray. Father, thank you for, for dwelling in our midst. Thank you for my brothers and sisters that you've brought here. Thank you for everything you were doing in this church and the lives of the people in this room. Um, you are an amazingly good and gracious God. Be with us now as we open uh, your word and we read these ancient writings. I ask that you would um, bring to our minds the things that you have for each of us to hear, for each of us to understand. There's, there's probably a little piece, sort of like a puzzle, that, that, that some of us are missing that, that's keeping us from sort of taking that step closer towards you. I ask that you would give that to us this morning. Um, help me to be able to communicate clearly. Um, free us of all our distractions, the, the things that have been keeping us up during the week, the things that have um, been screaming out for all of our attention. Um, let us acknowledge those and, and push them aside so that we can focus on you for a little time here, and, and maybe you can bring some clarity to the situations in our lives. Thank you, God. In your name, amen. So, um, in 2040 B.C., this was written. 
this is written in ancient sort of um, Sumerian cuneiform, if you will. Um, it was a written... Uh, 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 what it is basically, it's a written um, record, if you will. It was written on the, the newest technology that existed at the time, which was called the clay tablet. Um, tablets are different now. Um, this was the pinnacle of the technology that they had at this time for record keeping. And, and if you think about it, it was really groundbreaking because all of a sudden they had a way to permanently record things as they were happening in real time. And they've never had this ability. The world relied on uh, what's called an oral culture. They would sort of pass along messages um, to each other. Um, just they would remember them. And there was entire um, groups in the community who would be over the oral traditions and they would make sure that you were remembering things accurately. The human mind is actually much more powerful than we give it credit for. And people used to be very good at this. But... Um, eventually, um, they started writing things down because once in a while people forget things. Um, so what we have actually on this, um, as you can read on this tablet, um, it describes the, it's a detailed account of, of a basket weaving shop, um, which is pretty fascinating. Um, it has a list of materials that were borrowed that need to be repaid. It has a list of workers um, that were borrowed that, that worked for the owner of the basket weaving shop. Um, and it also um, has a list of monies that are owed to these workers and to the people um, who lent them different materials. This is one of the oldest known records that we have of someone owing someone else money or goods. Um, it's one of the first written records we have of, of debt. And this type of transaction, it's written about all through history because Pretty early on in human civilizations, we discovered debt. We discovered how to go into debt, and we discovered that debt is sometimes um, uh, something that people get in over their heads with, that they don't really think about. Um, and farmers oftentimes um, would end up sort of signing these, these deeds of debt. You know, you'd get into a time of drought. And so the farmers needed some seeds that they couldn't afford. They needed water for their cattle they couldn't afford, or, or grain for the cattle they couldn't afford. They would borrow from other farmers or from richer people and they would say, I'm going to pay you back with interest. And so this is how this sort of worked. And farmers, after a few years of drought, oftentimes would get themselves way in over their head in debt um, to the point where they would have so much debt that the years that they would have to work to pay back the debt were longer than the years that they probably had left in their life. And so what would happen was their children would be born and their children would be also attached to this debt. It's not like it is now where people would die and the debt would disappear. Um, the debt would be attached to the family name. And so a lot of children were being born, born into what is called debt captivity. They were being born into debt. Um, and in some cases, this went on for generations. Now, the scriptures actually borrow on this idea of... Um, of debt, of monetary sort of interest, um, and something that is owed. The, the, the scriptures borrow a lot on this to describe our relationship with God. Um, sometimes our sin, almost all the time actually, is referred to as debt. Even the words that are used, redemption, um, have to do with paying off a debt. Um, and so, you know, in Colossians 2.14, um, we read things like this, and you who are dead in your trespasses... Uh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us. Uh, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. I lost my water. Oh, I can't grab that for me. I'm, 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 I'm parched. Um, thank you, sir. You're a gentleman and a scholar. 
Um, so this is, uh, this is one of the ways that it is described as debt. If that spills, I'm in trouble. Um, okay. Um, other places it says that our sins are passed down from generation to generation. In the same way that people will be born into slave captivity, into debt captivity. Scriptures say this kind of thing is also a good way to describe our spiritual state. That we are born into sin. That it is passed down from our, from our parents from generation to generation to generation. It says that we were conceived in sin. And this is in sin did we enter into the world. Um, in spiritual debt did we enter into the world bearing the weight of this. Um, and it says that, uh, it also says in the book of Proverbs that um, the debtor is slave to the creditor. The borrower is slave to the lender. Whoever um, you take from, you are basically their slave, their captive. And, and nothing can change until you free yourself from this. Now, there's an ancient book called the book of Daniel. And it, and it says that God visited uh, this evil king. And this, this king was exceedingly evil. He did, he did lots and lots of things that were incredibly violent, that were terribly unjust, um, that were murderous. And he was a, a, um, a terrible dictator. Now, um, the word of God comes to him in the form of a hand. Maybe you've read this, the writing on the walls, a hand that wrote... Um, a message to the people in the room, and they were baffled by what was going on. Now, what it actually said on the wall, um, one of the parts it said was, was this, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. So he tells this king, your evil is exceedingly um, bad. It has taken um, from the, 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 the world that God wanted for us, the kingdom of God. You have been warring against God, and this is what we call sin. And, and, and you have been weighed in the balances of righteousness versus you, and you have been found wanting. You are heavily in debt. In other words, you owe me, and I have come to collect what is owed. Um, so debt eventually worked its way so deeply into society that the entire economic system of Rome actually came to depend upon debt. The only reason it could function right is because so many people owed so many people money and were paying so many people interest. In fact, there were so many people in debt slavery that there was an order put out by Caesar Augustus that the slaves were not allowed to dress in slave attire or slave uniforms because if they did, if they all one day came to the marketplace to do their work and they were all wearing the same thing, they would look around and you would realize exactly how many slaves there were. How many people that were captive to what they owed. And they would realize how many of them there were and that they vastly outnumbered the number of Roman citizens that were there and they would revolt. And so Caesar Augustus actually put out a decree saying, um, whatever you do, do not let them wear the same thing. It's not just awkward at a party. It can overthrow the empire, all right? Um, so when God first formed his people, the Israelites, he did specific things to make sure that they didn't live like the rest of the world, that they wouldn't know these kinds of things, that they wouldn't take part in the system that was sort of existing there. Um, and one of the things that God did to ensure that his people were set apart, they were different from everyone else in the world, he gave them all kinds of laws on, on how to... How to um, how to have marriage, um, how to treat your sexuality, how to treat your livestock, um, how to handle money. Lots and lots and lots of, of passages that deal with how they are to handle their money in a way that, that would ensure that they wouldn't fall into captivity with their money. Uh, and some of the things that he gave them, if you read actually Leviticus 23 through 26, you begin to see some of these really outrageous things that God told them to do. Uh, one of their underlying assumptions that God gives them is that everything belongs to God. 
Everything that you see with your eyes around belongs to God. It does not belong to you. It does not belong to anyone else. You cannot buy it from them. Everything belongs to God. If you have it, if it is in your possession, you are the steward of it. God has gifted it to you for a little while so that you can treat it like the kingdom stuff should be treated. So, there's several ways he taught them this. Uh, One of them was he taught them every seven days you're going to take a break from your work. Just a day off. Sounds awesome. Just do nothing. You literally couldn't comb your hair, look in a mirror, none of it. You couldn't do anything. You just had to just be, just exist. This was, and, and your livestock, they couldn't work either. This was, this was a way of exercising justice and sort of freedom uh, in the world. Now, um, another thing that he did was, was he claimed the offspring. Every firstborn, he called them the first fruits, the firstborn of their flock, of their sheep, of their cattle, of their whatever livestock they were raising, belonged to God. They would take it to the temple, and, and the first one born, they would deliver it to the temple. Um, it would, could be used to, um, it'd be given to the poor. It could, be, it could be slaughtered to feed the poor. It could be offered as a sacrifice for people maybe who couldn't afford the sacrifices. So this is another way that he claimed their, their stuff. Uh, their, and another way was um, the first fruits also applied not just to livestock. It also applied to um, their grains, the things that they grew. Uh, anything that, that came up out of the ground, the first 10% that they harvested, they would take down to the temple and they would give to the temple, which would again continue to be used to the poor or could be used for sacrifices. All of these things. Um, and so he taught them that their harvest belongs to God and they would have to give sort of this 10% tithe of everything. Now, um, another thing that he taught them was that the land belongs to God and the way he would teach them this is by every seven years they would take a Sabbath. In the same way that every seventh day you would take the day off and you wouldn't do any work, every seven years you would let the land lie fallow and you would not harvest it. This was God's way of ensuring that the people never overworked the land and, and, and that they knew that they were caretakers of this, that it, they did not own it, they were here to take care of it. Um, Oh yeah, and there was, there was one more tiny little command. Every 50 years or so, they would have what's called the year of Jubilee. Now this is a big deal, because the year of Jubilee was, uh, on this particular year, all debts would be erased. All debts. Um, all land would be given back to its original owner. All the people had to go back to their original homeland, their tribes, where their God had given them to live. So this also ensured that people didn't um, become greedy and overlend to gain more interest. Um, in a way, if you gave, it was kind of assumed that you might not be paid back, and that's okay. Um, all of this speaks to the fact that God didn't want his people in captivity. God wanted his people to be free. He didn't want them to be born into this type of captivity. The ancient Israelites knew what God stood for. God stood for freedom. And, and dozens of times throughout scriptures, God gives them a command. He says, you're going to do this, and you know why you're going to do this? And he would, he, would write the, he would tell them this. He said, because you were slaves in Egypt and I brought you out of the land of Egypt. You will do this. You will, you will take a day off because remember, you were slaves in Egypt and I freed you from that. You will not um, lend at uh, too high of a rate. Remember, because you were slaves in Egypt and I brought you out of captivity. You will not fall into idolatry because you were slaves in Egypt and I brought you out. So, so the God, thing God wanted them to realize was freedom, 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 freedom. I do not want you to ever fall into the hands of captivity again. Never. So let's fast forward a couple hundred years. Um, Rome, first century. Uh, Jerusalem. The Jews didn't believe um, that Jerusalem was just some city. 
Uh, it was a magnificent city. It was a beautiful city. It was the highest concentration of Jews in the world. But they didn't believe it was just another city in the world. They had a different view of space and time entirely um, than everyone else did, uh, especially you and me. Um, they believed that Jerusalem was literally the center of the world. In a lot of ancient maps, you see them described like this. Jerusalem right in the center and everywhere else. Jerusalem's always in the center of the map. This one's actually from the, from the, from the medieval ages, but a lot of the ancient relief carvings that we have and stuff that, that describe Jerusalem always put Jerusalem at the center of the world. And there's a reason for this. It's not just, it's not like how, you know, when we look at our maps in America, America's in the center. It's not like that. They, they, didn't, they didn't believe that any other place could ever be the center of any map because literally you could draw the entire world and you would find Jerusalem right at the center of it. And the reason for this was because Jerusalem was believed to be the holiest spot on earth, the holiest city in the world. Um, Jerusalem was literally the center of the world. It, 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 um, and in, in the middle of this city that was the center of the world, there was one small place, a building called the temple. And the temple was the beachhead where God, they believed, entered into the world. The temple wasn't earth, and it wasn't heaven. It was both. It was the overlapping. It was where heaven and earth intercepted. The spiritual realm and the physical realm came together in the temple, um, in the center of the world. So they believed all of God's blessings, all of God's glory, all of the work that God did came down at the center of the earth to Jerusalem and fanned out from there. And so Jerusalem... And the temple, in particular, was the holiest spot on all of the planet. And, and the closer you got to the temple, the closer you got to the heart of what God was doing in the world. Now, um, with all that being said, in the time of Jesus, the temple had become um, a symbol of everything that was wrong with religion. The temple had actually, um, it had fallen into the wrong hands. And it had come to symbolize the wrong things. There was this systematic oppression of the poor um, by the upper-class Jews. The, the temple had become actually the center of the banking system. Think about that. The temple had become the center of the banking system. In all of Jerusalem, in the, in the center of Rome. Um, perhaps worst of all, there was an addition built onto the temple. Um, I believe it was called the Antonia Room. And, and it was um, a room constructed later specifically for housing the scrolls that listed all of the debts that everyone owed everywhere. Think about this. The God who stood for freedom, for people never falling into slavery, the God who wouldn't let them um, even lend too much, or, I mean, at, at a higher interest rate so that nobody would ever fall into, into debt captivity. His house now had a room where all of the debt in the entire world was written down on scrolls and kept in the temple. This is not good. This is not the way it was supposed to be at all. It also, these records included how many years that the people would have to work to pay off all of these debts and how many years that, that this would pass on to their children and their children's children and their children's children's children and this would just continue. They'd be born into captivity and these records were in the temple in the presence of God. A God whose original plan was not debt and slavery, but freedom. Josephus, the great historian Josephus, actually says that the debt that was written on the scrolls and kept in the temple was actually the nerves of the city. If that debt ceased to exist, it could cause the collapse of the Roman Empire. There's several different ways that all this debt could overthrow the Roman Empire. It just had to keep going. They relied upon it. So think about that. 
deeply. God's house had, instead of being a place of freedom, become a place of bondage. Now, every year, this week actually, every year, um, you may not have realized, but this was also not just Easter and not just Record Store Day yesterday. Happy Record Store Day, by the way, belated. Um, It's also tax week. Yay, taxes are due. Now, um, so every year we sort of receive a letter, an email, whatever, a reminder on the news that our taxes are due. That whatever you owe to the government is due. Now, um, there's a man named N.T. Wright, and he sort of puts this in perspective about sort of government taxes and and the temple, and he describes what it would be like to be a first century Jew. Um, And he writes this. Now, imagine... Letters and records building up, detailing all of the debts of ordinary people in Jerusalem. While the chief priests who ran the system lived in their fine mansions in the nice part of town and went about in their smart clothes. If you were an ordinary, hard-working resident of Jerusalem or the surrounding area, what would you think of the building that was supposed to be God's house but that stored the records of your debts? While the rulers who performed the religious rituals marched by with their noses in the air on their way to put on their splendid vestments and chant their elaborate prayers. Yes, that's exactly how many people saw the temple. Now, think about that. This is what the temple had become. This is what religion had become. This is what um, the spiritual house of God had become. No longer a place of freedom, a place of absolute bondage and really pretty much terror to everyone who was poor and oppressed. At some point, the people actually figured something out. They started thinking the way I've just been describing, that, well, there's a lot of us. And they they had sort of an epiphany. Um, And the epiphany was that, I mean, what would they do if the temple burnt down? What would they do if those debts were all just erased? What would happen? Well, I mean, looking back, we know what happened. It caused the fall of Jerusalem and eventually did. it was part of what caused the demise of Rome. But at some point, they all started deciding, we want to end this. This is over. And they, they realized that if we destroy the temple, we can erase the debt. If we destroy the temple, if we charge in and we burn all of the debt, we destroy the temple, erase the debt, and we're free. All of us are free. All we have to do is destroy the temple. Now, There was a Jewish rabbi in the first century from Nazareth. His name was Yeshua. His Spanish name is Jesus. We call him Jesus. Um, His real name is Yeshua. I hope you know that. Um, And this Jesus was an amazing rabbi, and and he gathered a lot of people and taught a lot of amazing things. Um, And he was a very, very different kind of rabbi. He claims, one of the claims that he made was that he was the new temple. He didn't mean that he was made of pillars and and was concrete. He meant that he was the new place where God was entering into the world, where God's work would be done. He claimed to be the son of God. He claimed to be God in flesh. He was the place where heaven and earth met and came together. And that from him, grace and freedom and mercy would flow. And these are the kinds of things that he would say. There's one passage where he's, he's, um, he's speaking about the temple... And he talks about it being destroyed. And and, and the passage right after it says, if you were to tear this temple down and rebuild it in three days, after that it says, but he was speaking about his body as the temple. So he wasn't actually talking about the physical temple. When he spoke about the temple, he was talking about himself. I am now the new temple. I am the center on which God's plan is now at work in the world. 
This is what he would say. Um, he taught that he was the next phase in God's plan. The work of God would no longer focus on the temple building, but it would, it would focus on the temple of Jesus. And so he, he waged this full-on theological war against the temple. At one point, he storms into the temple, and he picks up a rope, and he starts hitting people with this rope, like whipping them, driving them out of the temple because he's so frustrated with what's happening here. And he flips over their tables, money's flying everywhere, and he's just, he's just whipping them all. He's setting the animals free because these people were charging money for sacrifices so that people could have their sins, their spiritual debts forgiven, and they were overcharging them. They were making money off of the work of God, and this, this infuriated Jesus. He said, you've turned the work of God, the house of God, into a den of thieves. And so this is what he did. He charged in and he cleansed the temple. And so, after this, he stands in the middle of the temple and he says, he has words for the leaders of the temple. He says, this is just some snippets of it. He had a lot to say. This is just some of it. You tie up heavy burdens and you lay them on men's shoulders. You shut off the kingdom of heaven from people. You devour widows' houses. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. And on and on he went and he infuriated the scribes and the priests and the religious leaders. Now, a little later, he was gathering up small groups of, 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 of Jews, and he, they would ask him, well, how, how do we pray? They were asking him how to communicate um, with the Father. And, and he, um, this, is, this is what he told them. He said, when you pray, one of the things you need to, you need to ask is forgive us our debts as we forgive those who owe us. Now, um, as Jesus' teachings went on, there was a sense in which he was no longer talking about money anymore. He was actually talking about sin, the spiritual debt that they owed they owed a debt which was not physical, it was spiritual. You know, we, we rack up monetary debt when we take, take, take. Um, we rack up spiritual debt when we take from God's kingdom. And things, this causes sort of a negative balance, and this needs to be fixed, repaired, somehow. Payment needs to be made, and this is how sort of Jesus talked. He said that, they owed a debt which was not physical, it was spiritual. And he told another group of Jews one day, he said this, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. This is something that they understood from their actual lives. If the sun sets you free, though, you will be free indeed. Now, um, he started telling them basically there's really only one way you can be free. There's one way. The records of debt that you have stored against you in the temple. I mean, he's the new temple. And there's a record of debt stored up in him. The only way that this can be erased, that it can be wiped clean is, you know, the debt's real. The transgressions against the laws of God, against the way things are supposed to be, they're all real. They have to be taken away. There's a debt and a record and it's in God's presence and it's in the temple, which is here. In me, I mean, this is how the ancient prophets talked about the Messiah one day would come. And, uh, and one of the prophets puts it like this. He says, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. In the same way that the physical debt was in the temple, um, the spiritual debt was on the temple, Jesus. And, and this is what the ancient prophets said would happen. They said, this Messiah would take on the spiritual debts. It would be all stored on him, laid in him. And he would possess it. And so if Jesus is the temple, he holds all of our debts. There's only one way to destroy the debts. Destroy the temple. And this is how he described what has to be done. He says, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. 
The slate has to be wiped clean. And so they did. As the poor enslaved Jews one day were coming out of, uh, the day after Passover, they, they, they went down to Jerusalem and they went to the temple and they offered their sacrifices. And about nine in the morning when, when the sacrifices would be ending, um, they were coming out um, down this street. And there he was, completely unrecognizable. He had been arrested by the religious elite whom he completely offended over and over and over and challenged them to theological duel. And, and they had arrested him and they had um, performed an illegal trial, took him before an illegal judge in the middle of the night. They, they, the way that he was convicted to die went against all rule of Roman law. Um, and he was sentenced to death. And so they're coming out of temple one day. They're coming out of the temple um, after paying to have their sacrifices made and, and God covering their sins they come out and, and Jesus is being led down the road up to the hill where he would be crucified and they would all watch this happen. Their spiritual debts on his shoulders in his person being carried away. And, and this probably echoed how it used to be in the wilderness in Leviticus 16 when they would have the Day of Atonement and the people would offer sacrifices to God and then the priest would come out and they would have a lamb called the Azazel lamb and he would put his hand on the lamb and he would speak the, the sins of the people over this lamb and he would I don't know how long this must have gone because there was a lot of people and he would proclaim all of these sins over this lamb and the lamb would be led out of the city by a Gentile into the wilderness and it would be killed so it would never return literally taking their sins away so Jesus here literally we use this as a metaphor, Jesus takes your sin away. No, literally, he took their sins out of the city to the top of the hill where he was put to death. The temple was destroyed and the debt was erased. A little while later, his followers would describe the spiritual interaction that people need to have with Jesus like this. Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. The time, this is, I mean, this is, a, this is exactly a description of literally how they would erase debts. They would blot them out so they couldn't be read. That times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send the Savior appointed for you, Jesus. He started telling them, this is really the only way you can be free. Place your sins on the Lamb, on Jesus. I love how he talks about a time of refreshment, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. You know what that is? Freedom. They've never, they had never felt freedom. They had always been born in, into bondage to people over them, always. And always falling into sin and selling themselves back into bondage again. And now the message of Jesus is, you don't have to live like this. You really don't have to. And now they were free from the consequences of their sin. And, and you know what? Within 40 years, that temple, the physical temple, was destroyed wiped out, the people charged in, burnt the temple down, erased all the debt, the empire started to crumble. Never again was that, te was that temple necessary, never again was it used, never again were the sacrifices offered. But there was one of these temples, one of these two temples was rebuilt, Jesus, three days later. Everyone saw him die, and then three days later, there's, there's a woman who goes to his grave with spices and things to... to keep going with the embalming process after the Sabbath had ended. She comes back and he's not there. And then she claims that she saw him alive. 
And then there was a couple more ladies that claimed they saw him alive. And then there was a couple of men walking to Damascus who, who claimed they saw him alive. And then the disciples saw him alive. And then over the next couple of weeks, there's 500 people walking around saying, look, I saw him die and I saw him alive. I talked to him yesterday. We had breakfast together. They ate with him. He taught them, sat on a hill with them and communicated with them. And they suddenly were believing something that their religion couldn't explain, that no one had ever believed in the history of mankind that one person would just rise from the dead in the middle of nowhere. And, and they started to realize, they started to make sense of the ancient ways of God. All of that was about him. The Sabbath was about him. The Jubilee was about him. That one day, just a reminder of, of refreshment and, and erasing of everything. And so Jesus... After his resurrection, sits down with his disciples and it, and it says this, he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and he said to them, this is, this, this, thus it is written so that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning of Jerusalem. So the thing that they were proclaiming now, you know, all of the festivals, all of the Sabbaths, the Jubilees, it was all commands and rehearsals Forgive each other, forgive each other, forgive debts, forgive debts, forgive debts, because one day all debts will be forgiven. And if you are going to be like God, this is what you're going to have to do. And he told them, so what needs to happen now is you need to go into the world and you need to proclaim forgiveness of sins. And here's why. And so the reason that the people in AD 70 burnt the temple was to wipe the slate clean. And the reason Jesus allowed himself to be killed was to wipe the slate clean. Destroy the temple, erase the debt. And the reason we gather every single week is to proclaim to each other, to remind each other the temple has been destroyed, the slate has been wiped clean. We don't look back, we look forward. We don't dwell on these things that you have done, that I have done. We cast them on Jesus and he buried them in that tomb. And so to everyone here, whatever it is that you have done, Whatever it is that you have done, Jesus wants you to know and we want you to know that the temple has been destroyed and the record has been erased. And Jesus has taken your debts upon himself. And when he died, they were not passed to you. You are free from the bonds of sin. And now Paul says something fascinating. He has something brilliant. He says, owe no man anything but the debt of love. He says, you know what you owe now? Love. Because you have been forgiven. A little later on, he tells the church in Corinth, he says, love keeps no record of wrongs. God is love. And you know what God does? He doesn't really keep records of wrongs anymore because the method for keeping a record of wrongs has been destroyed. And so we no longer do that. We offer grace now. And so we take your sins and we put them on Jesus. And they're no longer yours. And so I hope that this Easter can really be a time of new beginnings for you because this is what resurrection is all about. You don't have to be who you were yesterday. Today, you don't have to be who you were yesterday. You can repent and you can claim the forgiveness that Jesus talked about. The message we bring now is exactly what he told us. Repentance and forgiveness of sins. So today, you can repent of yesterday and it doesn't have to be like that anymore. Tomorrow doesn't have to be like it is today. Maybe you are just carrying really heavy stuff here. Tomorrow, the sun will rise and and you don't have to be living the same life that you are right now. You don't. It can be different. Forgive each other. Forgive yourselves. 
and receive the forgiveness that Jesus is offering you. And, and maybe all you can think about is that I have done some evil things. Maybe there's something that you have done that is that you feel is more evil than anyone else in this room has done. Anyone that you know. And, and you're carrying it around and you will not lay it on the table because you are just terrified because what you have done is terrible and God can't forgive you. God is, you think God's up there steaming angry at you, glaring at you. I want to tell you one last thing that Jesus said. He was telling a story. While he was telling the story, there was a prostitute at his feet, washing his feet. And the men around her were judging her that she would even come near the Messiah. That she would be even in their midst. They didn't want to even want to be around her, but Jesus welcomed her in. And he tells this story while this was happening. He says, a certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed, five, one owed 500 denarii and the other owed, owed 50 when they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. So let's get this straight. Just, someone has a lot of money and they, and they lend to two people. One of them, he gives 500 denarii to the other. He gives 50 denarii. Neither of them can pay him back. They both come back and say, I can't pay you back. I just can't do it. But I don't want to be in debt. I don't want to be enslavement. And the creditor says, you know what? You're both forgiven. Neither of you have to pay me back. Just keep it. And then Jesus asks a question. Now, which of them will love him more? Which of them will love him more? I ask you that same question. If that is you, if you are just terrified because the things that you have done just weigh so heavily on you, and you don't think that, that, that God loves you, cares for you, that Jesus wants anything to do with you, if you don't think this church wants anything to do with you, that, that good Christians will never want to be around me for what I have done. There's no, first off, there's no such thing as a good Christian. There's just not. A Christian is somebody who realizes they're not good, that Jesus is. And so I want to ask you this question. You've done so much. You owe so much debt. Well, you know what? The good news is you're forgiven. And how much more will you love Jesus now than anyone else? You have a little bit of an advantage. You've been forgiven more than everyone. So you have that much more love in your heart for Jesus. Forgiveness is a really powerful thing. And it's something to ponder as, you, as, as, as we close. Um, I want to reemphasize tomorrow really doesn't have to be like it is today. Offer forgiveness. Talk to Jesus. Lay everything out on the table. Ask him for your forgiveness. Forgive yourselves. And move forward. Um, before we sing our last two songs today, we're going to um, just watch a little something to prepare for him.